Hello everyone, my name is Abby Bonnet and you're listening to Gourmand, a show set on empowering the next generation of food lovers and leaders. In this week's episode, I sat down with Leah Guadagnoli from Fancy Feast Supper Club. We discussed the art of veggie-forward cooking, her process of planning menus and themes for her pop-ups, sustainability in her homestead upstate, and so much more. So let's dig in. Welcome to Gourmand, Leah. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm super excited to hear about your experience. Um, So I always like to start by just talking a little bit about your background. Um, So where did you grow up and how did your childhood influence your interest in food? Yeah, I grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago and um, I kind of, I was raised by a single mother most of my childhood and um, growing up, um, dinner was like a big part of our family tradition. And um, when we lived together and when my mom got remarried, it was a little trickier and my siblings, I siblings that were much younger than me and dinner time was hard, um, but I did have a lot of experience cooking with my Omi, who is of German descent and um, spending time in the kitchen with her, having fun and playing around and then sort of integrating pizza nights with my little sister when I was really young, you know, you know, having these nice family meals together that brought us together, um, unified us, felt really good. Yeah, definitely. I definitely feel like, especially when things are chaotic, it's always good to just have that consistency of a family meal, even if it's just like once or twice a week, knowing that like, this is when we all sit down and like come together over food. So that's amazing. Yeah, it was challenging because my dad didn't come home a lot. He worked late or he didn't come home for various reasons. And um, I really missed having that, that feeling of togetherness. So yeah, that's why, like, Fridays, I would start making dinner for my family at a very young age, and maybe it was, like, an excuse for everyone to be home, and, you know, it was challenging. I did a lot of sports and after-school activities, um, and, you know, I would come home, like, late at night from basketball practice and starving and eating saltines and pepperoncinis out of the fridge, like, I want food, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I totally relate to that. <laughs> Um, did you always know that you wanted to pursue a food-focused career, or did that kind of come later on? Yeah, you know, it sort of came recently. Um, I've always really loved to cook. Um, I can say, as long as I've loved to make artwork, I've always also been interested in making and eating food. Um, from a very young age, and just like very, in the same way as being a visual artist, just like very curious about how things are made how to reenact things that I loved or like be inspired by things that I thought tasted good just like the way that things looked beautiful to me like how to bring beauty in the world and it really wasn't until the last year and a half that I really started focusing a career in in the culinary arts um I've been a visual artist for you know a long time forever but you know exhibiting worldwide for the past 12 15 years and um but I felt that my creativity I just felt like it wasn't being fulfilling wasn't feeling as fulfilling as being in the kitchen and I felt like I maybe was like denying myself 
that space to be free and be in the kitchen and cook for other people and not just um, in a way where I would have these extravagant Friendsgivings of like 30 people, um, but um, like actually, you know, creating uh, ticketed dinners and involving strangers and expanding like what I'm able to do as a chef. Um, it's been like really eye-opening and feels really good to me to be shifting my creative career into cooking. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's so interesting, the intersection between food and art and other, you know, industries and everything like that. Um, and I'd love to talk about how your art artist career impacted your food later on. Um, but before we get into that, I was wondering, like, um, what is your educational background like? Did you go to college? And if so, what did you study? Yeah, I went to college. Um, I went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For my undergrad, I got a BFA in painting and art history. And I went straight to grad school. I went to Mason Gross at Rutgers for my MFA in visual art. And I've been out of school for about 10, 11 years now. It's like hard to keep track. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what I did. And uh, during all of those like, educational experiences, I was always cooking. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I, I actually saw on your website that you started hosting dinners out of your studio apartment at Rutgers. So I'd love to hear about that experience. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's like, I was like wondering, I'm like, everyone's like, where does Fancy Feast Supper Club come from? And I like, it's always kind of stuck with me. And I'm like, well, where's the origin? So I like looked in my Gmail and I saw this email from like 2012 where it was like, I was inviting everyone from the program to my, when I say tiny, it was like this, a studio apartment. The kitchen was in an old closet. Um, I had a mini fridge and everyone come over for a fancy feast. And, you know, or I'd use it for bribery. I'd be like, can you help me move paintings? I'll make you a fancy feast. And I remember just filling up the apartment. Like I had a slightly lofted bed, like not, you couldn't stand. You would sit under it. So people would be on the bed, under the bed, on the fire escape. There'd be things chilling on the fire escape because it was cold enough to like use it as a refrigerator. You know, people in the stairwell, everyone has a cocktail in hand. Everyone's got an appetizer. And I just loved it. It was, um, it felt so good to just fill the space with people and um, make food and, you know, offer drinks and have it be like a, you know, a curated cocktail to compliment whatever meal I was preparing and um you know I, I would put like all my money on food too like I feel like when you really love to eat like you, you like I don't buy money nice things like I don't buy makeup really or get my hair done or my nails done but I like love food so I like, go to Whole Foods back when it was like still a great grocery store um go to Whole Foods go to Trader Joe's in Princeton get the good stuff go to the farmer's market and treat everyone like you know just like have everyone over it was so fun it was really memorable yeah of course um and I love how you like talked about how you were pretty bare bones in your first like dinner experience and I think that's a good lesson for young people and people in college is that you don't need to have like crazy equipment and all this space to host an amazing dinner like you can do it with what you have and just be scrappy and be creative 
Oh yeah. I mean, and that's how I started the dinners later. I mean, I had a friend, I live in upstate New York now. Um, and I have a friend that had a barn and we did something in the barn and then I started doing them in my house. Um, I live in an old converted church, so it felt very appropriate for a sort of congregation space. And I just have a regular home kitchen, one oven. Suddenly I'm cooking for 45, 50 people, cramming them in like sardines. Started like they start evolving from just friends to all of a sudden, I don't know anyone in the room. <laughs> And that's sort of, that's when I started thinking about, okay, how are we going to like make this grow in a way that is sustainable, having a bunch of strangers in my home, while cool is a little bit spooky, you know? Yeah, totally. Actually brings me into the next question that I was going to ask, so that's perfect, is kind of how did you make that transition from cooking mainly for friends and people that you know, into turning it into a formal pop-up business? Yeah, so... What happened was like suddenly the word got out, right? Like Leah's, you know, a great cook and she creates this amazing experience. It's like, you know, they're not just, oh, you're coming over for dinner. I want that to always be the feeling, no matter where I am. Like it feels like you're coming over for dinner, but that it's like a warm, welcoming experience. And sometimes there's music, sometimes there's a visual art component, a collaboration with an artist on the table setting and the list goes on, but just um, people started recognizing um, how fun they were and how delicious. And I um, I felt so excited. And then I start getting emails from other restaurants like, hey, what you're doing is cool. Like, do you want to come here and do something? And figuring out what that is, right? Because they've never done it. I've never done it. And just sort of thinking about, okay, financially, like, what makes sense? Like, what do I need from them? And sort of, it was really a great exercise, too, in figuring out what my needs were as a chef and an artist and to do things in other spaces. Um, just like any business, you know, what what do I need to make, like, to make it worth it? And how much should the venue get in negotiating those things? And basically, I feel like every dinner I've done, it just has led to more dinners. You know, someone there is like, oh, I, you know, I'm getting married or that, that's cool. I think I might have my first wedding in August, um, which is very special. You know, weddings are a whole thing with like food stuff, but this person is like very into the food and very into what I create. And that means a lot to me that someone wants me to basically be the food component of the most important day of their life. Um, yeah, that's so crazy. Yeah. So yeah, it just, um, so it's, yeah, it just, it's evolved and it continues to evolve. Like I had, might be doing a dinner at the French embassy because they came to a dinner at PS 21 um, in Chatham. And it's very exciting um, to see sort of the snowball effect of, I think that is the benefit of doing them in other places. Um that the circle just continues to grow. Like a lot of people have asked me, oh, you know, how are you gonna open a restaurant? What's the deal? And I'm like, I'm not quite sure. Like that doesn't seem like the end goal for me because it really limits the audience. Um, and this way I can really have a lot more reach, especially living in upstate New York to be able to travel around and feed people in various areas. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in our past couple of episodes, our guests have talked about how having a pop-up or a supper club is almost like a blueprint kind of at a smaller scale for how you can have like the most sustainable or the most ethical kind of business model um, that isn't really as possible in a restaurant. Do you feel like that's true for you as well? Oh, totally. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I like to think all the dinners sell out and most of them do, but sometimes some don't do as well for whatever reason. It's a weird day or, well, I'm in full control, so I just hire less help and I do more of the work (laughs) and it makes it sustainable for me as a business owner that I can, you know, I have this flexibility where I don't have like staff. I mean, I have people that help me, um, but I don't have employees, you know, so it's basically on a need based system. Like if I have a huge thing coming up, I'm going to hire more people to help. But it basically, if I can space out the work, I can do a lot of it myself. Um, and just finding the balance in that, like sometimes I've got so many things happening in one month that I really just need, it's worth it to get the extra help. But in a restaurant, you have all this overhead. Uh, you have to be open constantly. Um, you have to have a staff that's going to be paid no matter if you have a great day or a bad day. And I've talked to so many restaurant owners and they're just like, you know, they're just sliding through like breaking even and breaking even is actually awesome. Um, that's not a bad thing, but um, it can be a rough industry and I think very limiting Although I love going out to eat, don't get me wrong. I want all the restaurants to remain, but I do see the benefit of doing the pop-ups. Now there's a lot more schlepping. Oh, there is a lot more. The schlep factor is like unreal, Um, but I'm getting better at it. Like every time I do a dinner, I learn more. I learn shortcuts in terms of how to pack things, how to prep properly and um, what kind of food to make that like isn't, it might be labor intensive, but I can freeze some of the components, etc. Um, you know, the one thing I would say that is like very beneficial to a restaurant is that I've done, for example, like an a la carte menu. Um, and that just doesn't work as a pop-up arrangement, right? I think the reason being is, well, the benefit to a restaurant is food lasts five days, you know? So if you don't sell, you know, the casserole on Friday, you got Saturday and Sunday to figure, you know, hustle it out. Oh, what's good on the menu? The casserole. You got to try it, you know. So there's ways to like hustle the food in a way that like the dinners in this way. I do. This is one thing about sustainability. And I feel very strongly about this is there's just always I make just enough food for everyone. Everyone's very full. And there's enough food to feed the staff and all of that. Um but the waste is a lot less, I think, than a restaurant. And I think that's, that's very important to me because why would you want to waste food? It's such a precious resource, you know, especially because I'm growing a lot of it. I get so angry if like, uh, you know, when I did a, I did a pop of where it was a la carte and I harvested like beautiful red cabbage for it and all my tomatoes and I sauced them and def- froze the sauce to frost. I was like, I'm going to sell out all these, you know, pizzas and the salad. And then I didn't, um, 
And then you kind of think about how am I going to reconstitute these ingredients into something else and think quickly. But yeah, it's, it's hard to do a la carte. And that's why I've really stuck to curated. Uh, I don't want to, call, I hate calling them prefix dinners because they're not. I'm like, a prefix dinner is just like, oh, you're going to dinner and this is the cheap option. It's like, no, I like want you to experience all of these things in this order, in this way. And the flavors are, it's like an eating experience, you know, and to me, that makes the most sense for pop-ups. Yeah, totally. No, I never thought about it that way. The different, I mean, of course, like at a pop-up, I've always known you have like more creativity to explore and like constantly change the menu, but I never thought of like the different um, formats of eating that are beneficial at a restaurant versus a pop-up. So that's really interesting. Um, And yeah, I can totally understand if you like grew all of this food and then having to waste it. I understand. I feel like that probably makes you even more conscious of food waste just in general. And like cabbages, you know, kale, chard, arugula, tomato. Like there's a lot of things that per square foot, they grow a lot of food. A cabbage, you get like the cabbage that's what you get and like if you get cut it early enough you can get the little offshoot clusters and those are really yummy and tender but like that's only that space is like dedicated to that single object (laughs) and um but you know it it ended up being being transferred into like one a delicious dish that I made at Stonehills where I made this eggplant parmesan gratin it was so good with like a creamy custard and I had I braised I immediately went home and I braised all the red cabbage um because I it was like it had a vinaigrette on it so it's perfect for braising and I froze it and then I was like you know what I'm gonna put it in the eggplant parmesan gratin and it was amazing and it was a black and white dinner so like the red cabbage had like cooked down to this black mass, you know, and people were obsessed. And I'm like, well, that my cabbage got the light it needed. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That sounds so delicious. <laughs> and that's the perfect, like jumping off point for the next question. Cause I'd love to hear more about the food that you cook at Fancy Feast. So like, what is your process for creating the menus and how do you include you know, seasonal ingredients and forage plants and local products and all of that into your food? Yeah, so I think about it in a few ways. The first way being like, okay, what is in season right now? Gets a lot harder in the colder months, but I love the limitations. Um, and then I think about interesting themes. Um, I like to try to not repeat myself, though some concepts are fun to repeat with new dishes. Um, but I love the limitation of that and like exploring other cuisines in a very respectful and well-researched way, or a lot of my dinners are Italian vibes. Cause I'm, that's, I love making homemade pasta. Um, and so yeah, just sticking to a theme. Sometimes I do things that are color palettes. Like I did a black and white dinner at Stonehills called Season of the Witch. That's the one I just mentioned. So all the food's going to be black and white and really thinking about how can it be black and white and taste good? Um, <laughs> for example, I did like my my activated charcoal black sesame sourdough focaccia and um, the gratin I discussed, the stracciatella gelato with coconut, you know, so just 
really thinking about flavor, texture in a colorful way that also feels a little spooky. But then some like a dinner I'm really excited about um, coming up is called Miami Basil. And as an artist, like there's these big art fairs in Miami in December. It's like they're a part of Miami Basel and like everyone and their mom goes to Miami for it. And there's a lot of FOMO if you're not invited, if you're not showing work, whatever, but it's really fun. But there's always those people that say basil instead of basil. And so I said, let me just make an Italian dinner that like has Miami vibes. And um, so I'm going to do like a pansotti that's filled with yucca. I'm going to do a persimmon caprese. But it's going to have, I'm going to make macadamia mozzarella, like try to make the whole menu also dairy free because like, I feel like that's the, you know, the vibe, right? Like, um, so that one's going to be super fun. Like, uh, guava, um, gazelle cookies, you know, the little waffle cookies. So really just come really, really harking in on that, like, like that, that merge of those two cuisines and, yeah, I just want people, it'll be December and it'll be festive. My friend Grace Lee makes 3D printed sculptures that incorporate like montages of really unique fruits and vegetables and she's going to do the table setting for it. So yeah, I just, I have these sort of wild ideas and I, I want to make food that like no one's ever had before. You know, it's my goal. Like I want people to come and I want them to have an amazing, delicious eating experience and be like, I've never eaten this in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so cool. I, I think I saw your activated charcoal breads on your Instagram. They look so cool. Like the, the coloring. Of yeah, them. they're wonderful. I mean, people, that's a grand slam every time. Like they just, they're like, what? It's not burned. It's <laughs> chewy and moist and it's black. And, um, it's it's really fun to make and I love baking bread. I'm a sourdough baker, so there's so many fun things to do with bread. And I you know, I also do my best to when I can do dietary restrictions and so with breads I'll do like a soca for people that can't eat bread and I don't really like making gluten free bread. It's like just give people like you know faking something is not as good as just giving them something that's a better alternative um it's a it's a really fun journey and I think there's like just endless creativity creativity when you don't have a restaurant right because if you have a restaurant it's like an expectation that you set a vibe a cuisine and this is what you do and this is the three things four things on that are always going to be on the menu um not to mention what I make is always vegetarian um so yeah, just a lot of flexibility and creativity with that. Yeah, definitely. I was actually going to ask you about that because sometimes I feel like, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, I like to eat meat as much as the next person, but I do think that sometimes meat focused food isn't as creative and exciting as vegetarian food because you're almost forced to like explore all these different flavors and alternatives. Um, so do you find that that is true for you when you decide on your menus? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love meat. A lot of people think I'm a vegetarian, um, and I'm not. Um, I I like to say I'm a selective carnivore. You know, I grow a lot of the food I consume. So in my head, I'm like, I get a little leverage. Like, I love a burger here and there. Um, 
it's funny, I'm doing this dinner with Molly Katzen, who wrote Moosewood, and she's not a vegetarian either, and she's made a career of vegetarian cookbooks. But I, her and I, like, both agree, you know, it's, it's more about, like, vegetables are so freaking cool. You got all these colors, all these textures, all these flavors, all these different ways to process them. It's, meat's cool, but it, you know, it's kind of limited in what it is. And you're going to laugh for free. Like, it's going to be awesome. Fried chicken from the highest end place or even KFC is going to be the bomb. And also, it kind of is crappy for the environment. Like, I feel like if I'm going to really feed the masses, right? Like, last year, I think I fed almost 600 people, you know, in the past past year or so. Like, that's a lot of mouths and a lot of mouths that didn't eat meat. And that also, a lot of those people aren't vegetarian that like realize, oh, cool. Like you can have a fully vegetarian meal and it can be awesome. And the meat doesn't have to be missed or something that feels like it's missing. Yeah, no, that's a really cool experience. And that brings me into the next thing I was gonna ask you also is um, kind of how do you promote sustainability through your business and how did you get into growing your own food and homesteading, gardening and all of that? Yeah, you know, I do my darndest to be as sustainable as possible um, because, you know, I have I have access to space to grow things um, and it just started very small. Like I moved upstate every year that garden got a little bigger and that's kind of how the dinner started too because I started getting so excited about having so much diversity in the garden that I didn't couldn't possibly eat at all and had a lot of extra stuff and that's also kind of how the dinner started ramping up because I needed to get I needed to like do something with all the food um and I'm at this weird threshold now where the dinners have really picked up and it is difficult to grow everything um and I think that's okay like I was feeling shame about it almost like I should, but it's fine. Like I can't possibly, I'm one person doing all of this. You know, I get some help here and there, but I, no one else is really like side by side with me in the garden, farm, whatever you want to call it. Um, one's doing all the admin work. <laughs> so I'm like, it's okay to cut myself some slack. I got to really get my garlic in the ground. Crap. But like, I think even just having it as a play, like a playing ground, like I can test test different recipes with my garden and I grow a ton of edible flowers. I like things you can't get at a restaurant or a bald or, uh, you know, order online from bulk. Like you can't get like bolted arugula flowers to put on your minestrone soup. You know, you can't get fresh nasturtium flowers. They wilt so easily. You can't make tomato leaf gelato because like, where are you going to buy tomato leaves? You know? So in a way I feel like the garden and my small farm, right. They've like, it's like allowed me to really think about how to use all the parts of the, I want to say the animal, the plant, like it feels like that, right? Like how do I use everything like down, you know, down to the roots, like even my, uh, in my cilantro bolts, I use, I dry the seeds and make coriander, stem goes into stock. I pound out the roots for stock. There's so much flavor there. Um, it's really fun to think about using all of the plant. You can even stuff, did you know, like 
zucchini summer squash the leaves like the the stems of those. I love yeah you can fill them with like ricotta and fry that whole thing yeah. like what <laughs> um, so there's just a lot of possibilities and these are things I learned by having space to be really close with the food and you know when I'm not able to source everything from there I try to you know use things that are local if possible um support even like the local grocery stores here like carry a lot of awesome local produce and connections with farmers um so I feel really grateful for living upstate because outside of my own grow space it's very easy to get excellent produce elsewhere yeah definitely no I think that's so cool to think about when you're more sustainably focused and you're committed to having less waste is that you're forced to use everything that you have and it creates like amazing flavors and things that people have never had before because you've never even thought that you can use the stems of the zucchini or the flowers of the zucchini or you know the seeds and things like that so I think it's really fascinating yeah I mean one of my favorite and a lot of it sometimes it's like by mistake I mean I think that's how we've all gotten here isn't bread they say like made because someone's built beer into the you know the unleavened thing and they or wine right um now you have sourdough um one of my favorite mistakes or not even mistake like a uh, circumstances is like I grow a ton of amaranth like it recedes like wild in my garden and it's a variety called happy red dye and it's so dramatic and dark purple and when I put it into all the vases for the dinners I noticed the water would turn hot pink and I was like you know I love pink everything so I look it up it's edible so I started making a tea right I'm like okay you boil the water it turns green like getting the temperature right with all the leaves and suddenly I have this like hot pink water that's vegetal this tea that's like unreal like you've never so now I just like at the end before the frost I like made all this like amaranth tea and have it in the freezer like anytime I need a pink cocktail here we go and yeah, it's only because I just was like making bouquets and was wondering why is the water hot pink? That's cool. Um, and people freak out. They're like, "What is this? It doesn't taste like beets." I mean, it does kind of have a vegetal like spinachy taste, but then it's pink, so your brain's like can't compute it, you know? Yeah, that's so cool. And I'd love to talk more about kind of your experimentation and your process because um, I feel like we, like all the people that I've spoken to, have 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 had different kind of paths to entering the culinary industry. You know, some people go to culinary school, some people are self-taught. So what is your, you know, process with like, um, first of all, like learning how to cook and learning these new techniques. And then now farther down the road, experimenting and trying new dishes. Yeah. I mean, and I think this goes for a lot of artists is like we, a lot of people think, you know, well, broke artists, it's a real thing. Right. But you still want to eat really well. Like, I think that a lot of yeah, visual arts people, anyone, like we love food because we have like a sensibility to things of beauty, right? And um, an attraction to things that make you feel good and um, like these like beautiful experiences. And um, yeah, from when I was in college, right, I was broke. Um, but then I got a Yotam Otolenghi cookbook, you know, plenty. 
when I was, I don't know, how old was I? 28, 19. And I'm like, Zatar? What is that? You know, just like reading the cookbook and just like the like Santa's list of ingredients, you know, and have, you know, going to Pensy Spices, which the spice shop where I grew up and I got spend my whole Barnes and Noble checkbook or, you know, check, check on spices and just, but like learning that way, like reading cookbooks. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. There was like a lot of limitations of cuisine, um, but I loved going to Chicago to try new food and from all around the world. And even where I went to undergrad, like the global, uh, it was a very global scene there. Like lots of, you can get really authentic Indian food. Thai food is a really cool place um but wanting to learn like how to make that like how to make all these different foods like homemade pasta like how can I make it at home and just being curious you know like what at a very young age like I love to eat certain things like how do I make it at home and then sort of growing older and really wanting to fine-tune those things and I think through years of just cooking that I um you get more comfortable and you get more comfortable trying things that might not work um a lot of (laughs) this is sort of embarrassing to admit but a lot of people are like so do you like recipe tests before the dinners and I'm like no not really like I you know when you got a dinner for like 80 people you're gonna learn how to make this idea you have right um you're gonna learn how to like implement change throughout the entire process because it's so big right um and that's that's how I learn a lot and I think I'm so grateful for doing these dinners because I am able to learn a lot while I'm prepping them and shift things if they're not working um taste along the way take notes like I'd really like to do a cookbook eventually like a real cookbook I'm always keeping track of the recipes that I put together and um you know but it I feel like the way I cook is you know like any Italian grandma you know they would laugh at you if you asked for a recipe (laughs) and so but I I keep very good notes and I you know a lot of times I'll just I'll have an idea I'll google it just see, has anyone ever done this thing? And then things, you know, they, they some people have the small component of this larger dish I want to make. And how have they done it? How have they done it? And sort of through my experience, knowing kind of what would work in those processes, like, oh, I'd probably add more X. I'd do less of that. I'd do this for a higher temp. But having a baseline, the internet's awesome for that. Yeah, totally. I think that's so important to talk about is just like not being apprehensive or scared to try new things. Because I think a lot of people, especially um, who maybe didn't grow up cooking or are just trying to get into it, they worry about like doing everything by the book and doing everything correctly because they think it's gonna, I don't know, like not work out. But I mean, if you just like try new things and taste as you go and like learn from your experiences like the worst that can happen is maybe like it doesn't taste as good as you wanted like what's the worst that's gonna happen yeah I mean one of the most challenging things to make is my black bread when I'm not doing it at my house right because I know I've done it I made the various forms like a loaf picacha etc I've done it so many times here I know okay it needs to be at 425 for 30 you know uh 28 minutes like and it's done 
for the focaccia. But it's black, so you have no idea if it's actually done. Um, and so what I've learned is just to bring a thermometer with me. You know, all these ovens are different. That's the most one of the most challenging things. You go to a, you're like texting the chef. You're like, yo, what's the oven like? Is it run hot, cold? Like, is it on point? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, ah, you know, I don't know. Because no one knows, right? It's all relative. If you work with one object, that's your thing. You, it just runs the way you think it does. Um, so I've been poking <laughs> a thermometer. Like, I guess... 210 is good for 200 degrees at it worked out I was because one time I had an under one of four loaves was undercooked and I was like no because it's too late I've already got it and luckily I always make more than enough food bread wise um it's a challenge for sure yeah definitely I didn't even think about like I mean, I worry about my one oven being calibrated, but if you're working with all these different ovens and equipment, it must be like really difficult to keep track of everything. Yeah. I mean, that's the the best part about collaborating again with the space. Cause like, oh, I know, I know how everything works here. I know where all the things are. You know, there's nothing worse than like showing up to a place you're doing the pop-up the next day and you're like, where's the rolling pin? Where's the freaking rolling pin? You're like spending a half hour and it's like right in front of you. But you know, when it's not your own kitchen, it's hard to know where all the things are. Yeah, totally. Um, I'd love to go back actually and talk a little bit more about something that you spoke about earlier, um, your career as an artist and how does your art career and your cooking career coexist? And how do you find yourself using your art experience when it comes to cooking and vice versa? Absolutely. Um, you know, for a while I was really trying to do both and it was very hard and I kept wanting to be in the kitchen more. I would be like, I'd be in the studio working on a deadline and I would bust out my Google notes, you know, Google docs and be like, I have an idea for something. <laughs> like, gotta write that down, you know, like, beet risotto what's that like um and I just kept getting distracted I would be like oh that was a great place I ate dinner I wonder if they do pop-ups I write in a quick email and I'm like Leah what hello like just pay attention what's happening here like you want to cook just let yourself cook and I just I think almost recently just like accepted it I was you know, I felt like this pressure. I mean, I've been showing my work for so long. People have known me as a visual artist. Everyone knows I've always loved to cook, but that's been my identity. And I was, I was kind of terrified to, I don't, I'm not letting it go. It's just evolving into a different medium, but just accepting that really cooking is where my heart is. And it's actually been there for a very long time. And I think what I've gathered, my visual art practice is so much about collage and painting and sort of merging those two with sculpture and lots of textures and colors and creating like a very balanced visual experience. And that's exactly what I do when I cook. You know, I think about color and texture and form, collaging really wild things together into a unified form that is a delicious eating experience uh, or at least I hope, hope people like it and um, 
you know, coming up with really sort of wild combinations in a way that makes sense. And yeah, just thinking, it feels good to say that it, they both are rooted in collage in this way and yeah, creating a, an experience that feels really well thought out and colorful. Like I, I love thinking about color. Like I'm, I'm a sucker for, you know, candy cane beets watermelon radishes I can't help myself um and color is super important to me and it was also very important to me in the studio with painting and um getting the hue just right and I think about that with food like I'm just gonna add a little touch more cream because it needs to be slightly more pale or let me get the lemon juice and the like purple sweet potato soup so it gets a little more, bit more red and really thinking about pigment with food too and same with the amaranth tea um there's just a lot of possibilities again with plants but don't get me wrong I love like mashed potatoes and parsnips I actually did a a dinner and I'm going to do one again um where it's just all root vegetables um a whole menu based off of root vegetables I want to do another one that's like allium, you know, just like all like onions, garlic, leeks, ramps, like bring the beano. <laughs> that sounds so fun. I love that. I think all your different themes are so interesting. And I am like thinking about if I was going to do like a root vegetable themed dinner, what would I cook? So that sounds really fun. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You just ask yourself the question. And what I love, one of my favorite ways, a lot of people are like, how do you like think about your menus? I'm like, all right, this you really want me to set the scene, right? I love taking baths. I have three baths, three cloth bathtubs. Uh, imagine you're like kind of hungry. You know that feeling before dinner? It's like really exciting. Maybe you went for a nice exercise, a walk, a run. That's the vibe. I'm in the tub. I'm a little hungry. I probably have a martini. I'm writing notes on my phone and I'm just really excited about whatever idea I have. And that I feel like is when I write the best menus. Like I I love taking the time to just sit because I feel like when I'm on my computer, like I live on a, you know, a homestead. So it's like, there's always stuff to do. There's like something to clean, the chickens need water. I should really think about weeding. Like when you're in there, Tom, you're like locked and loaded. You're not going anywhere. You light a candle, maybe set the ambiance, and uh, you're stuck. And it's like focus time. No, I love that. I love setting the scene like for a purpose and like to make sure that your brain is fresh and to come up with new ideas. That sounds like perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And try really hard not to look at Instagram, you know, but then all of a sudden, Instagram like somehow knows you're like, thinking about vinegar and then like live like the living vinegar ad shows up and like how did you know how did you know I was looking at your you know wild uh zest I don't know vinaigrette or something no that's so funny but that's so important though because I feel like some people like they try to like come up with ideas when they're stressed and like they're trying to force it um and you don't think about setting the scene like to be creative I feel like a lot so that's really important I think for people to keep in mind Oh yeah, like last night it was like a bad move. I last yesterday was nuts. I like packed up all my stuff from the city at this restaurant from the people for my Halloween dinner. Uh drove from Bushwick to the Upper East Side to the, you know, the French embassy to have a meeting with them. 
And then I drove from there all the way back upstate. And it was a nightmare. Oh I think gosh. I was in the car for like seven hours. And at home, after helping my boyfriend unpack, he moved into a new house. And I like got on the couch and like, I should work on my December di- dinner menu. And my whole brain's like, please, just why are you doing this to me? Like, just go yeah. to bed. It's midnight. Okay. You know, got to give yourself some rest too. But it's hard because it's so exciting. There's so much momentum that you, if you have an idea, you like want to work with it, you know? I totally relate to that. Um, okay, let's talk about how you use your pop-up in your dinners to create community. Because on your website, you talk about um, using food to create connections and togetherness. Um, so tell me more about how you do that. So with the dinners, I, for a long time, was doing curated seating charts. Now I sort of gave, um, I kind of gave that up because it was very fun. And that was a big part of what I wanted to create in the experience. But I started noticing that during, I always have a cocktail hour. And that's when everyone starts to meet people. They don't know. A lot of people come single. FYI, anyone listening that's single, that doesn't want, there's a lot I feel like I should just do a dinner that's a singles night that'd be so fun anyway I digress um I started noticing people were sitting next to people I sat people next to each other that weren't hanging out during cocktail hour and a lot of people knew each other or um made really close pals with those people but then I kind of let the progression happen where during cocktail hour people are making friends and they end up sitting with those people and then the relationships are even stronger um I think there's this wonderful thing about, you know, not going out to eat, but like sitting at a long table with people or a room full of tables where you have a communal like area where there's the food and a lot of people don't know each other and they leave friends. And to me, that's so special. It's like, I think it's really hard to, when especially as you get older, like meet new people. Um, and I love creating an experience where people feel comfortable and welcomed and like they're walking into my home, even if we're at a restaurant, you know, and that like they can mingle with each other and leave friends and um, be connected through a dining experience. Like that's some, another reason why I don't like cooking meat because, so, you know, if someone is having the ribeye and someone's having and the pasta. I don't know about you, but I still get really jealous of the person with the pasta. I usually say I'm a vegetarian no matter what, because I like want the vegetarian thing. Um, but they're connecting through the eating experience. And that's important to me. To I grew up in a situation where I didn't really have that, uh, that feeling of togetherness at a dinner table. Um, it was rare. And I love creating it for other people. It feels very meaningful to me in that way. Um, and now I will, you know, it's like the other side of this, right? Is like, yeah, they're not cheap to attend. That's like very true. Um, and I understand that. And um, and they are like, they're not, it's not cheap to come to a fancy feast. And I wish it could be. Um, but like, again, you got to think about your needs as like a business owner, as a, someone running their own ship, like there's a lot of costs and a lot and a lot of labor, a lot of unseen labor. You go out to eat 
that's a system, it's easy to like kind of make it less expensive. But these are all individual experiences, all individual menus that are totally new and invented. I still think though that like people leave feeling like they got their money's worth. <laughs> they had a great time and they'll be back again next month, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I also think it's so fun to talk about food as a conversation starter because I think a lot of times when you go out to a restaurant, traditionally, you know, you're sitting with people that you know and a lot of people are eating different things. But when you're all, you're sitting together eating similar things and people don't know each other, then the food can act as a way to connect and like, start talking about, oh my gosh, like I've never had this flavor of risotto before. Like, what's your favorite flavor of risotto? That's what happened at our last supper club for Gourmand. We were like, you know, what's your favorite flavor of risotto? We got a whole conversation about risotto. Like, it's so fun to like use that as a jumping off point. I couldn't agree more. It really is the great unifier. And, um, and then people can get deep from there. And it's really magical to look out. Like I've always been the person who wants to throw the party and doesn't like going to parties. And I just love being the host. And I love looking out at everyone having a wonderful time, connecting, leaving as friends. Like it really means a lot to me. And I, that's genuine, you know, like I, I love being that unifier of people. Yeah, definitely. No, that's great to hear. I think that, you know, like creating an experience where people leave happy and they want to come back is the most rewarding thing. Yeah, I have a lot of people that have are returning, you know, they're frequent flyers and I, it means a lot to me. I, I'm like, oh, you must really like this. And I've had people cancel vacations to come to a dinner, you know, I've had, I'm like, no, it's cool. Like, they'll be more like, I just can't miss that one. We were going to go to Puerto Rico, but we're not, you know, it's, um, it's very special. Yeah, no, that's a huge compliment. Um, okay, so I'd love to hear what's next for Fancy Feast. What do you see the future as fancy, of Fancy Feast looking like? Yeah, so um, coming up in December, I have two really exciting dinner com- dinners coming up. Um, I have one at Sarah's place in Massachusetts, really close to Egremont. Um, it's going to be called Cottage Core. <laughs> and it'll have like a rooted vegetable pot pie, white cheddar mac and cheese, cornbread. I'm still like developing the dessert idea. Might be some sort of gingerbread cake. Um, and just, yeah, really like leaning into that because the the venue has like a fireplace it's super cozy it's like out of control cozy with like cute wallpaper I'm like this will be perfect goose egg eggnog they have geese on their farm there and like I think that will be so weird and good um and then after that will be the Miami Basel one at Stablegate Winery and um in upstate New York with my friend Gracely Lawrence who's an artist that will be doing the table settings the Italian tropical arena and into the new year like yeah I'm looking at doing dinners all I'm like already looking through October and have things lined up so 
Um, I'm really looking forward to just continuing to do these, like a mix of things that are ticketed or just public events. Um, I'm hoping to collaborate again with PS21 and hopefully Storm King. Um, so yeah, just a lot of a lot of exciting things and continuing to do the research for hopefully an eventual cookbook. That's amazing. And I actually, that brings me to a question I was going to ask you about your cookbook zine. What was that experience like writing that? Yeah, so I had this idea to do, um, I did this, it's called Not a Foreland. It's an art fair in Catskill, New York, and they have an artist market. And they were like, oh, would you like to make some things? We would love you to. And I'll make a recipe zine, which a zine is basically like, a very DIY book, like small, usually hand scanned, Xeroxed. And then it just kept growing. Like I'll make I'll make recipes, I'll jot them down from the past year. It'll be like 30 pages. It ended up being like 90 pages. And I ended up getting printed uh, by PS Hudson, which is a print company in Troy. And um I yeah, it grew and grew and grew and it was I loved doing it because I had to like revisit stuff, you know, and really be like, okay, what well, what was the recipe? Let's like really think about like I know you were in the kitchen, I was frantic, like what what's the essence of the recipe? And and um it doesn't have any visuals, a few scans of things, but yeah, it was really wonderful. And I'm working on another one for next year. Um it was yeah, it's it's a lovely object. It went from being a zine to like kind of a book, you know, because it's huge, it's like 90 pages. And um, it's a nice thing to have because it's like an archive for me. It's okay. What did everyone really love from the past year? Let me put that together in a compilation. That's like, yeah, this acts as like a, this is from this past year. And then keeping it moving forward yeah that's so cool I can't wait to see you know what's next for Fancy Feast and your cookbook and your zine um it's all really exciting uh so where can viewers and listeners of the podcast stay updated with Fancy Feast and with what you have going on yeah so there's I think the two best ways is one to follow me on Instagram it's Lavender Lady Supreme or you can just look at my name and then on my website, fancyfeastsupperclub.com, you can subscribe to my newsletter there. It'll just pop up and you'll stay informed that way as well. Okay, wonderful. All right. So I have one last question. Since Gourmand as an organization is mainly college students, um, what advice would you give to students and other young people who are looking to maybe enter the food industry um, or start a pop-up? I would just say to not give up, that it's not always going to be easy. Um, even things that feel like a failure have so much potential learning in them to kind of always look at each step back each time you want to do something and think about what you will take from that experience and move forward with. And it really helps create this like internal momentum, I think, to growth instead of sort of the your effect oh man no one likes what I'm doing it's like no they do they do it's cool just keep on keeping on you know that's what I would say yeah it might have been my mo in in life pretty much no matter what 
Yeah, no, I think that's great advice for anybody to take. Okay, so let's get into a couple of fun rapid fire questions. So just the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the question. First one is, uh, what's your favorite music to listen to while you cook? Oh, techno. Or the Grateful Dead. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite comfort food? Mashed potatoes. Yes, classic. Okay, and last one is somebody else in the industry that's doing something cool that you'd like to shout out. Ooh, I love, I'm obsessed with, Molly um, Boz is awesome. And she just came out with the second cookbook and I just think she's the coolest thing since sliced bread. That's amazing, I love that. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And that's a wrap on this week's episode with Leah Guadagnoli. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Gourmand Community.